Hey, and welcome to Mainstream by Sifter. Now, if it's the first time you've ever listened to the show, Mainstream is Sifter's review podcast where we talk about the games that we've been playing. The team at sifter.com.au discuss their experiences playing a variety of games. They can be those AAA titles that everyone's talking about, cool indie games, retro re-releases, all of that is covered here. My name is Gianni. Thanks so much for joining me. And on this episode, my co-host is Adam Christou, who has been smashing wave after wave of enemies in the Musou fighting spin-off of the Fire Emblem series what game are we talking about this week adam fire emblem warriors three hopes it's got a long title hey (laughs) many words mushed together i'm i put a hundred hours into this thing i don't even know if my eyes are working anymore i think for for ease of use we're going to call it three hopes from now on um but before we find out what this game is all about let's find out what has been making the news this week on the latest episode of walkthrough Sit down for a chat with your pals in video games. This is Mainstream. So Adam, Fire Emblem Warriors Three Hopes. What is this game? Well, uh, I guess this is the latest in a series of collaborative crossover uh, spin-offs between Koei Tecmo and Nintendo, uh, where they sort of grab their Dynasty Warriors franchise formula, the Musou game series, and sort of mash it with Nintendo products. Um, so prior to this, we had um, a couple of Hyrule Warriors games, uh, including a very recent one based in the world of Breath of the Wild. And we also had uh, a Fire Emblem Warriors game before this one as well, which sort of was like a cross-universe Fire Emblem game set around to the kind of Fire Emblem Awakenings and Fates era of of that franchise. So before uh, Three Houses had come out and become a thing. Uh, But this game, uh, Three Hopes, is definitively set within the world of Fire Emblem Three Houses, which is the most recent game in the Fire Emblem series. I believe it's the 16th game in the Fire Emblem series, which is wild to kind of think about. Um, And I think what makes this marriage of genres work really well is that Koei Tecmo and Intelligent Systems worked together on Fire Emblem Three Houses a couple of years ago to kind of refresh that genre. And it's the same team in Koei Tecmo that have come together to work on Three Hopes and take these characters, take this story, and and kind of expand this universe that was in Three Houses in Three Hopes. And I think that's part of the reason why so much of this clicks really well, is that you know the original scenario director and writer of Three Houses is back on board writing a lot of the script for this game, um, a lot of the characters have been lovingly translated from where they were in Three Houses and feel like they fit into this world really nicely too. So in terms of it feeling cohesive and feeling like it's in conversation with the previous game, it just works lockstep with that. And I think like the the Musou genre and Dynasty Warriors genre of games fits the scope of storytelling that Fire Emblem is doing, which is grand epic battles between dynasties and empires and kingdoms and what better way to have those battles than to play one extremely powerful character and defeat thousands of enemies in single combo hits so it all just kind of comes together really nicely what I really liked about this game is that it does take a lot of those elements you would know from the tactical fire emblem games and then it kind of enmeshes some of those systems that you'd be familiar with um, but 
you know, lays that over the top of this, you know, quite ridiculous anime fighty game where you just go and smash a bunch of enemies. It's not super duper complex um, combos or anything like that. There are some sort of strategy stuff you can put together and, you know, build up little combo meters and things like that. But I always felt like I was, despite it being a game where basically you just press X and then sometimes you press Y and then you get to a point you press A, um, you know, there was bits and pieces I could do to improve my characters and, and level it up. Um, tell me about those sort of systems because you've played a lot more of Three Houses than probably anyone else I know. Um, so uh, tell me about how that sort of meshed those systems together. Um, and I'm sure some of them are simplified from what are in Three Houses, but how does that all feel for you? Yeah, they've done a really great job here. So um, I think some of the big takeaways for for how they've done this is they've sort of cherry-picked some of the best elements that make a Fire Emblem game really fun and sandwich them in here. So Fire Emblem, one of the things that I really like is that each unit that you have, each character that's in your your party or like that you're deploying in battle tends to have a few unique traits about them that make them really stand out and make them be characters that you want to invest in. So say, for example, if we're going to use Three Houses as, as an interesting example, in Three Houses... Bernadetta in the Black Eagles was an archer and she had this passive ability where if she had taken damage, she would gain bonus damage um, on future attacks that she would do to enemies, which made her really strong in the right way if you set her up correctly in certain battles. It added like a strategic layer. Um, In Three Warriors, uh, Three Hopes, my God, this name, in Three Hopes, Uh, every single character that you play has a unique ability that they can sort of bring into combat that might dramatically change the way that they fight compared to other characters, as well as two different passive abilities that kind of lend into thinking about how to approach building them up as a character, which I really like. It makes your roster feel really valuable. So, for example, um, Claude in The Golden Deer has the ability to just passively have wind damage applied to all of his attacks. When enemies get attacked by wind damage, they take more damage when they're juggled up in the air by air combos. And so therefore, playing Claude in a way where you're constantly throwing enemies up into the air and bouncing them around and juggling them becomes really important to maximizing his damage. It changes the way that he would play versus a different archer that you might play on a different team. Likewise, if we go back to Bernadetta that I mentioned before, her power in this is to kind of lay down almost like a stasis field of frost damage on the ground and any enemy that walks into it immediately freezes, which makes her incredibly strong for crowd control control and really great as an archer as well because she can just stop anything from hitting her while she just unloads onto enemies which i found really compelling another element that i really like here that they've taken in terms of like that sort of idea of units having identity is the way that level ups work and this is a classic fire emblem thing where every character has like innate strengths and weaknesses based on the percentage chance of what stats they're going to level up when they level up so say, for example, in Fire Emblem Three Houses, um, you might have a character like Raphael who naturally kind of leans towards being a very strong character. He might have a high percentage chance to get a point of strength every level versus another character who might have like a very low, like 15% chance to get a strength upgrade. And those sorts of ideas have carried on into Three Hopes. Every time a character levels up in Three Hopes, um, they have their own sort of personal 
like internal list that you can't see that's hiding behind the screens of percentage chances to level up their various stats then the class that they're in also impacts their stat growth as well so depending on your luck and the sort of character that you're playing you might have a character that just has a really terrible magic stat and they are not going to be a fun mage to play. Likewise, other characters are going to naturally move into magic-based abilities quite well because of how their stats grow. And I like that that's kind of been kept into this. I know we're getting deep into like the spreadsheety realm of, of kind of character building. Um, but this sort of granularity, I think, makes um, kind of designing your team and your generals and your characters really, really fun. On top of that, um, you have a variety of different classes that you can move your characters into. And as you master those classes, you unlock a combination of new attacks that you can slot onto your character, as well as new passive abilities that you can slot onto your characters. And there is real benefit in mastering a large variety of different classes across the board on characters to get lots of interesting different passive abilities from all across the class trees so that you can kind of create a really interesting endgame build. That's also really fun here and then you've got like the classic sort of dynasty warriors style like a million pieces of items drop and they've all got different sort of passive abilities and stuff so finding the right weapon to complement that character the class that you've built them into the passives that you've slotted them is really satisfying and then i think the final kind of like seasoning if you will um, the cherry on top is that they've brought over a big element of Fire Emblem, which is the weapon triangle. So the idea that different weapons are stronger against other weapons, sort of like rock, paper, scissors, but instead it's like lances versus axes versus swords, and also uh, magic spells versus fists versus bows. And all of those sorts of weapons have different strengths and weaknesses. Some classes will be armored, which makes them weak against magic. Other classes will be flying, which makes them weak against bows. But it means that you can sort of tailor which generals you're going to bring out to these battles based on the sort of enemies that you're going to fight. And you will get a really tangible benefit from, from taking advantage of um, the weapon triangle and the the and really going for enemy weaknesses here. It makes a massive difference in terms of clear time of levels and of how quickly you're knocking down enemy generals. And it's just really fun to build a team of different heroes that kind of hit all of those different strengths and weaknesses so you can take advantage of it. Makes you feel strategic. And and that's something that I think has been a little bit lost sometimes in Warrior games where it could feel very rote and repetitive. And this game does get a bit rote and repetitive, especially after you've dumped 100 hours into it like I have. Um, but having that little degree of strategy every time I open up a mission map that makes me go, all right, which characters am I bringing to this one? Whose class am I swapping over here? Do I want to tweak this this item there so that it can help, like, offset an enemy's attack for this particular unit that sort of stuff all flows quite nicely i actually just jumped into um hyrule uh, warriors age of calamity um just recently to kind of compare and contrast because they're the two most recent versions of these spin-offs and i definitely found that yes as you said there the the strategy aspect of it was much more emphasized in 
in Fire Emblem because, yeah, I always had a roster of, of like maybe like six or so core characters around that. Um, and they basically would be, I'd level them all up equally, give them the master up their classes and things like that. And then if I was up against certain enemies, I'd just slot them in um, depending on what it was. And there's also, an, you know, there's an encouragement um, method to use characters as well, which I don't know if that's been borrowed entirely from the previous game because I haven't played that one. Um, but it is, uh, you know, an idea that you, you get a bonus basically if you pick a character who's like, "Hey, pick me, pick me, coach, sub me in." Um, so you know that sort of stuff is sort of incentivized you switching your characters up. I did find that as I was going through, it really did benefit to to really think almost like, "Here's what here's my task that I'm going to accomplish in this particular area, and here's where I'm going to send everyone else to go do something." And I basically used to send them as an entirely huge group. I generally have like one person who was at like the boss, and they'd be the one to be ordered around to go and do things, and then everyone else would be guarding that boss, um, and then we would just go and steamroll across the map in other parts. I'm curious, is that anyway how you played, or did you play this completely differently? I love that that's the way you played, but I went in a completely different route. And I think the the way I started playing this was I I really leaned into some of the changes to the way that you can control the NPCs in this that kind of also aren't in uh, the Breath of the Wild one as well, which is that you have a lot more granularity and control over your non-controllable units. Like you can you can order really basic like go here, do this in in the Breath of the Wild one. But in the Fire Emblem game, you can open up that map and you can be like really like all out of fence on this enemy. All of you charge right now over there. and Seize that I, base. Yeah, what I found I would do is on most of like the auxiliary battles, which is sort of like the side missions before you get to the big meaty story quests, I would have usually four units that you can deploy on that, and I would make sure that almost all of those units would complement the enemy's weaknesses, and then I would usually alternate, bounce between them. So as soon as a map would start, I would um, allocate where everyone is going, and then one by one I would swap between the characters because I would find that I can take down an enemy general while controlling a character in about... 15 seconds compared to the 30 to one and a half minutes that the like computer is going to do if i just leave it to its own devices so what i would do is i'd kind of systematically take over the map really quickly by constantly bouncing between the characters which i'd sent off in all sorts of separate directions to do different missions and stuff um so everyone would split up across the the board and take on different uh territories and i would be constantly bouncing between them all um and for the main story missions, um, you get eight characters that you can usually deploy. So I would immediately use uh, the adjutant system, which is another Fire Emblem thing that's been port- brought into this game, which is the ability to pair up two characters together and have them enhance each other in battle. They'll kind of contribute combos, add some bonus stats to the person that they're supporting, and then join them for super special warrior attacks, which are like room clearing uh, combos that you have to build up a meter to use. Um, so I'd kind of pair up everyone based on their kind of support levels and who had what good passive abilities to work with each other and then do the same thing, uh, assign those four main generals different tasks to accomplish on the map and then constantly swap between them so that I could get through things as fast as possible. Because you kind of get ranked by like a B to S system, sort of like a Devil May Cry game um, at the end of each mission. And one of the key elements of that is how much damage are you taking? Um, how many enemies have you killed? And how much time did it take you to finish a level? And so because time is such an important factor to getting S ranks on levels, I found myself 
trying to push as much um, time out out of the way as possible. And that meant controlling multiple characters and bouncing from different parts of the map as fast as possible. And only one character, your main character, Shez, who I guess we'll talk narrative in a little bit, um, has the ability to teleport a couple of times each mission. Everyone else is sort of hoofing it around on feet. And unless they're mounted, they're going to be a bit slow. So I found it best to split everyone up far and wide and constantly bounce between them. I, I never found it was very um, tricky to hit that time. <laughs> I always found that, you know, maybe once or twice did I fail to hit the S time as I was moving around with my one main character bouncing around, Shez uh, uh, blasting everything in sight. Also, you know, I never really paired up um the like support characters with each other i only ever used to pick whoever i used to like as my main character and pair up with them and build up their relationship and some of the other aspects of the of the game as well so it's really interesting that there's sort of a real variety to the way that you can play it i wouldn't say that i was definitely min-maxing this situation but i felt like you know there was plenty of opportunities to to you know steamroll my way through and feel pretty pretty good about it but i also found like you know it was it was in a game that really asked a lot of me at the level that I played it at as well. Um, you know, I found it to be relatively, in as weird sort of say this, but it, it was quite meditative because you just kind of get into a nice little pattern, you're moving through things, you're ticking off little boxes, and then, yeah, you're on to the next level and you're moving your way through. Um, and there was always so, always those little things that you were, you're ticking off and, and achieving each time. So you play one level and that's enough, you know, for a bit, or you play a couple of levels in a row or maybe get to the final level of a, of a mission, you know, of a particular area that you've unlocked and you might want to pass that or you might just want to do like three of the sub levels as part of that so you know there's plenty more to do and you know as you improve your relationships as well there's a side missions that are that unlock with certain characters as well the paralogues which are again similar sort of things but give you a little bit more story to those characters as you build it up as well and that sort of comes into the narrative aspect of it which i think we should probably talk about because you know i'm curious because as someone who's not played um three houses i i sort of came into this pretty fresh and you know i had played a lot of the older fire emblem games particularly ones of the sort of gba era um but hadn't played anything more recent than that um so how, how do you think or you know tell us a bit about how this storyline fits in with three houses where does it sort of sit yeah um i guess the best way to think about how the narrative in this game sits along three houses is to think of it as almost like a complementary set of three different stories that can fit alongside the idea of what Three Houses was doing, which is that Three Houses as a game was a story that branched off into four different, very separate narratives. Um, early on in the game, you had four different routes that you could kind of go through for that game. And there is no real considered canon or final route for how Three Houses plays out. Um, and the way that Three Hopes works is it kind of adds another three routes to the idea of how the events and story of this world and these characters might unfold. So it's sort of like a parallel universe retelling of the events of the first game, but it's also sort of a sequel and it's also not a retelling and that kind of a few things are changing and quite different to what happened in Three Houses. And then both the narratives in Three Houses and Three Hopes are playing off each other in a way that revelations that are coming forth in the story of Three Hopes are coloring in pictures or gaps or questions that people may have had when they finished Three Houses. And likewise, there are questions and mysteries in Three Hopes that are answered by the stories and routes in Three Houses. Um, and the way that Three Houses was designed was 
you can kind of play through a route and get a good picture of what's going on, but to feel the full story and to really shade in all of the gaps and mysteries and understand kind of everything going on, playing through the other routes really helps you kind of understand a lot more of what's happening in the world. The fool needs to hear this in the plainest terms possible. It was I who chose war with the Empire. I who murdered my uncle in cold blood. I who oppressed the Western Lords. I failed to save the people of Dusker. Failed to save Glen and my father. The lives my actions stole from them are mine to atone for. But this is all because he worries about you, Dimitri. And it's not just him either. We all do. Your Majesty, you know my feelings on this matter. Six years ago, I too watched as nearly everything I cared about was taken from me. And Felix is no different. He lost his brother that day. This pain is not yours to shoulder alone. And Three Hopes just kind of adds more layers onto that as well. So if you played both games, it feels very richly rewarding in the sense that you're just getting even more texture to this world, even more plot development and and kind of more um, set up and understanding of who these characters are, what their motivations might be and why they're making the decisions that they've made. And you're also getting to see a different version of events take place because a few very dramatic narrative shifts in the opening act of this game mean that history can go in a very different direction than it did in Three Houses. And seeing how that plays out differently is very interesting and fascinating as well. It's like, yeah, it's like fan fiction, but like really good and also not fan fiction because I guess it's technically sort of canon in this game. Um, but I guess this is a game series that has no real canon, if that makes sense, because there's so many different versions of how things can play out. Does that it, make sense? Yeah, I think it does. It almost, to me, I felt like it was when you see, um, uh, you know, like adaptations, different adaptations of the same story or different treatments of the same story. Like one's the novelization of this particular story, one's the film version of it, for example. And, you know, or this is the TV version telling of this particular story. And that's kind of what it reminded me of um, as as it was going through. Um you know, but obviously all told by the same person. So it's, you know, really, I think the thing we kind of touched on, um, you know, in the written version of um, the review was that uh, it is it is a, a game for people who really wanted to return to the world of Fodlan, basically. If you really liked that world and couldn't get enough of it, this is another way to step back into that world that doesn't have, um, you know, you know, it's, it's not a destructive way of revisiting that world. Yeah, and I feel like we've danced around it a little bit, but it's time to unpack what Fodlin is <laughs> and kind of talk through some of the main players of, of this narrative as well, because they're all such fascinating and fantastic characters. So Fodlin is like a mythical kingdom, um, kind of very medieval era, I suppose. It's To me, it feels like it's probably the size of like an American big state, like a Texas or something, or like a chunk of Europe, um, based on how quick like uh, army formations tend to move around this place. It doesn't seem that big. And it's home to three main different kingdoms that have kind of split off chunks of Fodlin into their own little areas of land. You've got the Adrestian Empire in the south, which are the traditional kind of kingdom that used to run the whole shebang, like the entirety of Fodlin used to be the empire back, 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 back in the day, hundreds of years before this game's events take place. 
Then you've got the Holy Kingdom of Fargus up in the north and the west. And that is sort of a branching off of the empire that split off with the good graces of the central church to form their own kind of monarchy and kingdom. Uh, they're like very much all about knightship and chivalry and kind of all that really boring stuff that paladins and dungeons and dragons do. Um, and then you've got the Leicester Alliance, which is a bunch of nobles that were both from the kingdom and and the empire that sort of said, nope, we peace out. We kind of want to rule our own little kind of duchies and baronies or whatever, and we'll do our own thing with a round table and screw your kings and queens. So they're off in their own corner. Um and each of these kingdoms uh, has a, a house leader for them, so um, kind of like a leader of their various alliance. So in the in the south, in the in Adrestia, you've got Emperor Edelgard. In the north, you've got uh, King Dimitri, and over in the east, in the Leicester Alliance, you've got Claude von Regan, who is the I guess the chairperson of the the Round Table of the Leicester Alliance of nobles. Um, and in the original three houses, these are all students and they're going to a war college and they're learning how to like do war at, by the Pope, the magical Pope that runs the church. It's wild. Um, in this game, you don't spend much time in the school era. It's like, really, you're in there for two hours. You do hours. get there though. You get there, but you're there for like two missions. And in yeah. three houses, you spent 40 hours as students. So the, the, the difference in terms of where the story spends a large majority of its time is very different. Um, you kind of go into the war phase and everyone being adults a lot quickly here in Three Hopes. Um, and so, like, you you kind of join a house um, that all the students of these various kingdoms are in. So, there's three houses, the Black Eagles for Adrestia, the Blue Lions for uh, the Holy Kingdom of Fargus, and the Golden Deer, who are the best house and the coolest house, and they're full of cool people who are great. Uh, they're, they're the Leicester Alliance. Um, and so you join that house and then a few years later, everyone goes to war and that kind of gives you the backdrop of sort of the narrative of where you're going to go. Basically, um, your character Shez is a mercenary and you kind of have mysterious powers and you're really good at battle. Um, so depending on which sort of faction you align yourself with, you're going to tip the balance of events in Fodlin and dramatically change what could potentially happen in the big cataclysmic war that's going to impact these three kingdoms. Mm. You really feel like you're just the finger on the edge of the scale that pushes things in a certain direction. And it's interesting because the main character who uh, you play as in um, Three Houses exists in this world as well. And it's kind of like it's a branching, it's like a sliding doors moment in a way. They've gone off in one direction and you've gone off in another direction. And, you know, where that sort of weight on the scale has pushed has really changed the way that the, the you know, the world's, you know, events happen. So. Yeah, I, I really love the way that they bring in the character from Three Houses because obviously very similar to, to Shez in the original Three Houses, Byleth, the, the protagonist of that game, is such a strong mercenary, has such incredible powers and strengths that they just tip the scales of whoever they end up supporting um like the house and the kingdom that they end up joining but in in three hopes they just remain a mercenary for hire that gets picked up by different people but when they show up on the battlefield they are terrifying they show up and everyone freaks out and people just start dropping de dead left and right and it really kind of shows the power of the the previous game's protagonist when they're kind of a really intense scary threat on the horizon and i really like those moments it reminds me a lot of like dynasty warriors when you'd have like someone like Lu Bu show up and just be like an unstoppable killing force and you just have to run all your forces away from them as fast as possible 
um, adds a really fun element. To it's interesting, story, isn't yeah. it? It it makes you feel like a non-player character when the player character appears. Basically, yeah. when everyone's the- just like, "Run, get out of here!" They're taking down all of the forts that we had. Run. Yeah, it's a wild game to sort of experience as well. I'm just wondering, um, you know, the the the, the plot of it sort of described as sort of a, you know, uh, games Game of Thrones esque. There's a lot of sort of you know vying warlords and things like that and betrayals and stuff like that um you know and it's something you could sort of spend ages sort of digging into but was there any aspect of um this game that you thought didn't work as well because i'm getting the feeling that it was a pretty enjoyable game if you put 100 hours into it and made your way through multiple different uh place playthroughs yeah look i've played through two routes right so far and story-wise i think it's you know i think yeah, top 10 anime betrayals kind of energy. Everyone's constantly backstabbing each other and there's surprise twists aplenty, which is always fun in these games. Um, I, I would say that, like, I guess the few things that have stood out for me um, are that, yeah, the story has been really fantastic and really great. It's But it's sort of like Three Houses and it's very show, no tell. Um, a lot of the time characters will just get together and they'll they'll talk out a cutscene of really cool stuff that happened that you didn't get to see or partake in. And you're like, oh, that's really fascinating. This war is really interesting. And then you get dumped into a map that looks the same as the last 20 maps that you did and you run around and you kill the same five enemies. Um, but, you know, if I can stop and kind of put my imagination on like it's a visual novel, then those problems don't really worry me too much. Um, you know, I... I pl- I played a hundred hours and two routes of this game and I still want to play the third route and see what happens in that one as well, because I'm fascinated to get the full picture of the story. I I think with fire emblem, there is like this temptation to talk about Ludo narrative dissonance just a little bit. Um, And I know that that term is a little bit lame now because I feel like we've done that thing in video games where we've talked about like the idea of say like a Nathan Drake character being a wisecracking nice dude, but then 10 minutes later he's shot 30 people in the head. Um, There is a bit of that energy here in Fire Emblem where, you know, your characters are committing literal war crimes in some missions. And then two minutes later, you've unlocked a support conversation where they're all bonding about their favorite cup of black coffee. And you're just like, uh, okay. I've made this really nice dinner. Come and sit down and eat it with me <laughs> or right. have a cup and, of tea. Or like Hubert, who is like the Imperial um, Emperor's like right-hand man and basically organizes assassinations and all sorts of nasty stuff for Edelgard. And she's just like, la, 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 I don't care. Has all these weird supports where he's just checking in on people and making sure they're having a good day and trying to make them smile. And it's odd. Um, so, you know... I don't mind that because it's very like slice of life life anime and I kind of roll my eyes and laugh with it. But some people might be off put by the strange tone shifts that can happen between some of the high drama and big like war epics of the main missions and then some of the really kind of wild and odd moments of character development. I know you played Blue Lions, which tend to be the most serious crew of them all. They tend to all be like, my honor, my honor. Oh, I care about knighthood. But when you're in Golden Deer and everyone's really lazy and they just want to hang out and make perfume for each other, it really stands out. (laughs) Yeah, for me, I didn't think it really was like that weird. I mean, you you hear a little bit about the stories and the path that people had come from. And I think I actually found really interesting the sort of enemy generals that you recruit were the ones that I really quite liked talking to the most. So, for example, um, you know, there's opportunities to use like a strategy within a certain mission, usually the sort of the capstone mission of a particular area, and you recruit an enemy general i recruited 
Dorothea, who is like a quite a good mage. Um, and, you know, she just tells you all about her life being an opera singer, uh, basically, before she, or, you know, being like a theatre company, basically, before she became a mage and melted a million people's faces off. And, and that was quite kind of it, it was kind of weird to talk about but it was kind of enjoyable as well because you're like this person has been taken from somewhere else yeah we recruited them as well um and now you get to see this sort of humanity behind this i don't know this person who melts a bunch of faces so yeah it is it's kind of quirky i'd imagine it must be like even wilder when you're talking about um three houses as well because that would be there's much more of that sort of thing i, I isn't there in that yeah but it, it kind of weirdly works like i'm able to suspend my disbelief and put the war on hold because Dorothea as a character is just a really great character. Like her big main things are I'm trying to find a noble to get married to because I'm a commoner. And also I ain't going to be a diva forever. So let's, let's get a ring on it because I know how society works. Um, And then also her kind of empathy and compassion and real love for other characters and her her lack of desire to to fight against people that she went to the war college with is a big part of who she is as well. Um, but at the same time, she also hates the class system that she's forced to live within because she's firsthand experienced the hardships of it, grew up as an orphan and was basically rescued into the opera company, which gave her the, the sort of privilege that she's been allowed to have in her life. And I find that to be such an interesting way to like, there is so much depth to Dorothea and even though it can be a bit wonky to have these sort of lighthearted conversations with her between missions, it makes me care about her as a unit in my squad and makes me want to make her the coolest mage in the world as well. Like that sort of care is in all of these characters and there's like 40 of them. There's like and it's, 40 it's or 50 And it's the stakes though as well because if mm. you lose any of those characters, boom, they're gone. See ya. Yeah, they're gone forever. <laughs> like just like three houses, there's permadeath available in this. So if you lose your generals in a map, they're gone for good and they died. And you will definitely be coming up against circumstances where um, you will be fighting and killing enemy generals, potentially characters that you bonded with over dozens of hours in three houses or in another route in three hopes, you will be the person that kills them uh, depending on where your story events go. And that can be really heartbreaking or great for drama when you decide that you've recruited one of their fellow generals and make that general kill their old friends. I'm not saying I did that to poor Ash, but I may have done that to poor Ash. Um, <laughs> he killed half of the blue lions and felt really terrible about it. But you know, that them's the breaks, Ash. Um, you defected. So, <laughs> um, it's a really interesting game. I think it's one that um, you can appreciate if you haven't played uh, Fire Emblem uh, Three Houses, but it's obviously one that is is bolstered by and uh, one that has left me thinking, man, I've got to try and find a copy of that game on a reasonable death. <laughs> but, the, you know, Nintendo games, they never go down in price. So um, it'd be really cool to, to jump into this world from another perspective. Another 300 hours of, of Fodlin awaits you in, in, in Fire Emblem Three I'll tell you, I'll tell you what that's like in December when we finally get to that point. Um, that is Fire Emblem Warriors Three Hopes. It's developed by Koei Tecmo um, and it's available now on the Nintendo Switch. And thanks to Nintendo Australia for providing us with a copy of the game for review. This is Mainstream. This has been Mainstream Sifter's review podcast, and my name is Gianni. You can read a written version of this review on the Sifter website. There is a link to that review uh, with a bunch of different screenshots, so you want to see what this game actually looks like and plays like. Uh, You can do that by clicking the link in the show notes or just head to sifter.com.
www.salty.com.au. Thanks to Brian Fairbanks from Salty Dog Sounds for composing the mainstream theme music. Sifter is produced by Nicholas Kennedy, Kyle Paletto, Fiona Bartholomeus, Daniel Ang, Adam Christo, who joined me on this episode. Thank you, Adam. My pleasure. Mitch Lowe is our senior producer, and my name is Gianni DiGiovanni. I'm the executive producer. Thanks to Omni Studio for their support of Sifter's three podcasts. And yeah, those three podcasts are Lightmap. It's our interview show featuring conversations with game developers, creatives, and people who are doing very cool things in interactive and digital media. We've also got Walkthrough, which is Sifter's weekly recap of the news in video games. We've got all the release announcements, controversies, and what games are coming out in coming days in Walkthrough. And you've been listening to Mainstream. It's Sifter's review podcast. That's all for this episode. Recommend us to your friends if you like the show. Until next time. Have fun.